Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and the Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. Sharon, it's good to be here today for what I'm sure will be an incredibly powerful conversation. In recent weeks, we've had a number of extraordinary guests join us to talk about the importance of the Indigenous voice to Parliament. Guests such as Kate Orty, Helen Haynes, Dale Agus, and of course, Rachel Perkins. And today we're going to continue those conversations, which have always been important, but, but really do resonate deeply in this year of the referendum. Hi, Anna Greta. It's great to be here with you once again. And yes, this is a conversation that I'm so looking forward to, and it's one that's close to my heart and to my research. Since the beginning of the white colonisation of Australia, Indigenous children have felt the impacts very heavily, from the horrors of the stolen generation to the current overrepresentation of Indigenous children in child protection systems and in youth detention. Claims of the abuse of Indigenous children were used as a justification for the Northern Territory intervention 15 years ago, and in recent months, we've again heard politicians making claims of child abuse that have been widely condemned as unsupported. Indigenous children's lives have too often been used in ways that objectify them, deny their rights, and ignore the love and the care that is at the heart of their families and their communities. Within Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures, children have a sacred place. The Uluru Statement from the Heart says, We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to this country. They are beautiful words, and the vision of all First Nations children flourishing and walking in two worlds is a powerful one, and one that might begin to become a reality through a yes vote in the referendum on the Voice to Parliament later this year. To talk with us today about the challenges that Indigenous children and their families face daily and the opportunity we have before us for change, we have a very special guest and one whose work and commitment I've deeply admired and respected for a very long time. Anna Greta, would you like to introduce the amazing Catherine Little? I would very much like to introduce Catherine. Catherine is a Aranda and Lewitcher woman from Central Australia. She's a leading advocate in upholding the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, influencing and driving positive change. As CEO of SNAKE, she works to strengthen, represent and amplify the voices of Indigenous children and their families. And for those who don't know SNAKE, it's the national non-governmental peak body in Australia that represents the interests of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. Catherine, it's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Policy Forum Pod. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be joining you. Catherine, SNAKE is the national voice for Indigenous children. It's working to ensure that all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children grow up healthy, happy and safe. Could you tell us a little bit more about the way that SNAKE works and the issues that you're currently focusing on? Yeah, look, I think you can't talk about the way snake works now without actually going back and understanding where we came from. And essentially, we've been around for um, just over 42 years. And at that point in time, you know, there was still a lot of um, distress around the stolen generation. And that distress will last for years and years and years. But no one was in the 
policy space or government space was actually paying any attention to these issues, nor were they paying attention to the issues that had been um, experienced by our families as a result of years and years and years of policy failure. And those policies being heinous, you know, they're absolutely heinous. And, you know, while it's the most obvious one is obviously assimilation. We know that even when assimilation stopped, our children continued to be removed from families at unacceptable rates and continue to this day to be removed at rates that are just abhorrent. So um, the other thing our communities were noticing was that our children, very few people spoke very highly of them and yet they were incredible. And again, if you if you root that back into the stolen generation and what was happening at that time, Australia had told Aboriginal children not to be proud of who they are, not to be proud of your families, not to want to be part of this incredible culture, but rather to become someone else. And these things had incredible impacts in and around our families. So it meant that um, not only did you have nothing to feel good about, um, you were told actively not to feel good about those things, but Simultaneously, there'd been no investment in our families. Housing was still critical, lack of jobs, lack of access to jobs, racism and all those sorts of things. And when you go round and round and round in circles on those things, it all comes back to policy. These, the, we, the, the disadvantages and vulnerabilities that our children and families were facing were all tied to policy decisions and those policy decisions um, informing how programs were delivered, informing how we could interact with the world around us and informing what was considered a good outcome for our children and families. That's a really long way of, of saying that's when everyone got together and said enough. This can't keep happening to our children. Um, and so people from all around the country, and that included our health services, our emerging ACCAs, which were child protection, um, community-controlled child protection agencies, and pretty much any other community-controlled organisation with an interest in children came together and said, we need a peak body. The only way to combat this is to go for policy uh, and we need to stand something up. And the first thing we need to hit is stolen generations. We need to be advocating stronger for what has happened to our children, why it's still happening and what we need to do to recover as a people. Uh, And so they stood up snake. And again, at this point in time, there wasn't a lot of dollars around. So um, the ACCAs at the time and the health centres at the time all came together and said, look, the only way to stand this body up is to share it around. So those organisations that had a, a little bit more fat to them would take on the peak body um, and and not so much, um, I, I think the word is we use these days is auspice. It wasn't so much auspice as nursed. There is a, there's an office to sit in, there's some administration, let's get you standing until you can stand by yourself. Um, so that's, that's really how we came about. And as the years have progressed, you know, we've had to go through many types of iterations to be able to survive and and that is I guess that's that's part of modern life probably the biggest um, hit we ever took was in 2014 when we were one of the organizations to be defunded um, under um, the cuts to the Aboriginal service sector and again showing you where the priorities are in in relating to children um, it was considered not to be uh, this particular vehicle was considered not to be valuable and so the board and the council uh, our members and our communities got together and said no way the peak body does not go down the peak body will continue to thrive and we will continue to look at how we do things differently so it meant we had to even push up even higher into advocating for significant policy reform and start um, getting really active in a way that we hadn't hadn't been able to before and, and again these things come with the genesis and the evolution of your services but um, for us in many ways, the coalition of peaks and that incredible agreement that the coalition of peaks was able to negotiate which said listen if we're really serious about closing the gap and those gaps for children are pretty bad um we need to be doing things differently. That was really a watershed moment for the survival of this particular peak body because we'd been fighting so long to get these big policy reforms in place. We were ready for the change and the transformations that government was going to bring in. So um, that's a long way of saying we're still here. We're still fighting for children and using the current policy settings that we have around us at this point in time, 
we're stronger than we've ever been. Catherine, we're sitting in a public policy school where we genuinely believe public policy matters. And I think hearing you talk about the the history of SNAKE and why it is so incredibly important um, and what has contributed to changing policy discourse, I think reinforces for all of us, if we ever needed to hear that, just how much policy matters mm. and how wrong it can get it and and what a difference policy can make when it's, when it's shifted to be working for people. Mm. Catherine, I wanted to pick up on on what's a challenging issue at the moment um, and one that's attracted a great deal of both media and political Mm -hmm. attention, and that's the complex systems, uh, the complex issues that are playing out in the Northern Territory Mm. and particularly Alice Springs. In April, you wrote a very powerful article in The Guardian where you describe the ways in which Indigenous children have been weaponised mm-hmm. um, with the comments earlier this year from the Leader of the Opposition about child abuse, mm-hmm. part of a much longer history of very damaging, mm-hmm. very deficit-based narratives. Can you talk us through what you mean when you talk about Indigenous children being weaponised in that way? Oh, look, if anyone's ever heard me speak over the past two years, it is something that, you know, I I draw to everyone's attention. I say when what we have observed, and we've observed this over um, decades of of behaviour, right? So these are things that we've seen happen. So we we sense when it's coming. What What we've observed is that whenever something is not going too well for governments, all of a sudden Alice Springs becomes a hotspot. All of a sudden everyone turns their attention to Alice Springs and the rhetoric is the same. The rhetoric is your children are not being cared for. You are not looking after your children. You're not capable of raising your children or your children are being harmed by your practices and we need to remove them. This is something that we have seen happen to us over and over again. Um, you know, the, uh, the most... Um, you know, we, we know that we had, you know, it was almost ground zero when, when we look at things like the bungalow and um, the removal of children in Alice Springs. And, again, it's something that people don't talk about very much because it sort of goes under the radar when you go and visit the telegraph station. You forget that that's actually where that incredible meeting place that was so significant for our families and the passing on of our law and culture became um, – a place where children were removed. And anyone who knows that region knows that those children who were removed there, their families went and hid in the hills so that they could call out to them at night time using animal calls and those sorts of things. And if you're crawling around those hills on the other side of the telegraph station, you can still see the old tins and, and pieces of paraphernalia that the old people would have used when they came in at night time and called out to the children to let them know you may have been taken from us, but we're still here. So it is, it's been something that we've been seeing for a very long time. But we also know that no one really knew what to do with the Northern Territory, right? Those, um, the frontier times are not so long ago for us. And certainly in my family, living memory, when families would walk in for the bush looking for a safe place from what we used to describe as rifle times. And someone asked me a question the other day and said, what do you mean when you mean rifle times? I said, they were the times when people knew they'd be shot and killed for no other reason than they were walking through their own country. So as we saw those things, you know, people need to find safe places. Government came up with policies, um, some of those policies related to rations, some of those policies related to being, you know, told when and when you could work. Some of those policies were you could only work um, if you um, signed away your identity. I don't think anyone genuinely ever signed away their identity, but that's what government would ask. Um, and then, you know, there were other big, big systemic changes, like when um, stations actually had to pay Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to work on those stations. All of a sudden, there was no more work for the Aboriginal stockmen, and in they came into town. And then there was another huge problem. Where do you put all these mob? Oh, let's let's develop these things called town camps and put them on the fringes. Not quite in town. Let's put them on the fringes. And again, being cognizant that not too long ago before they did moved into thinking about, well, let's put town camps in place. It was illegal to enter Alice Springs after about six o'clock at night. Again, these things, living memory, our families remember when you were not allowed to be on the streets after six o'clock at night or allowed to sleep inside the town boundaries. So the town wasn't ready. 
The town wasn't ready for these things. There wasn't enough housing and no one was projecting. What happens? What happens when your communities grow? How do we ensure that people, when they come into town, have jobs, that they have all access to the services that they need? And we saw things like the emergence of our great um, Aboriginal community-controlled services. And, you know, they, they sprang up because our communities, again, said, well, government's not coming to, to our aid. We need to solve these problems ourselves. We need health centres. We need legal representation. We need a different way of being able to service our families in the town camps, but not only those ones, those ones in and around us. We need different ways of doing this. So up they go. And, they and again, like great community design, they were designed in... Um, areas where the greatest Aboriginal need was. And in Central Australia at that point in time, Alice Springs at that point in time, you were looking at the gap. And the gap was where all the cottages were, most of the um, how public housing was. And you had access to Congress, which is the health centre. Um, you had access to Traeger Park, which was the school that most Aboriginal children went to. In fact, something like when I was a kid, 98% of the children at Traeger Park were Aboriginal and then again, in comes another policy shift and it says, you know what, we've put you mob in these houses that are really close to town and that's worth a lot of money. Let's move you. Let's move you out west and we're going to take you away from this school that you feel safe in. We're going to take you away from that health service that you can walk into. We're going to take you away from that supermarket that everyone has grown up around, Piggly Wigglies, or the mission block where people understand where they walk into. And we're going to put you out west in these brand new houses where you can't access services anymore because you know what? There's no buses yet. Um, and again, these are big policy shifts that had massive impacts on people um, and their well-being. And, and again, the Aboriginal community comes in and says, well, we will build those centres. We will make sure our mob have access to these services. And in comes the next load of um, big policy shifts. And that one, of course, is the intervention where, um, again, where there was an election coming and all of a sudden up goes the media and says that all the children in Murujulu are being sexually abused. Now, and, and let me be very clear on this, sexual abuse is heinous. One case is too many. It is absolutely not okay. And the truth of it is, is it exists in all communities. And anyone who tells you it doesn't exist in their community, and that's black, white or brindle is telling you a lie. But it is not okay. Um, but up it goes. And it was enough to spark uh, an inquiry. And that inquiry was enough to spark an intervention where we saw in our communities out bush, the army rolled out. Imagine that. And I don't know if any of you have seen the footage, but when you see the army walking through those communities, what I see are my direct family members, full family members on the sidelines, sometimes waving, sometimes looking complexed, but all of them absolutely terrified that their children would be taken away. What we know about the intervention is everyone was required to um, present their children for um, examination for child sexual abuse. Every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person got that letter to say you are required to present your children. Now, a lot of us put those letters in the bin. Um, people like myself did that because no way was I going to present my four children for presentation um, because the federal government decided it wanted to win an election on, on our children. Um, but when they did the reviews, the, the, this, this out-of-control abuse of our children wasn't found to be the case. What they found, and, and don't get me wrong, they did find it in places and that is always going to be the place, case. But what they found was extreme poverty, a failure to invest in adequate housing where families are living in housing of, you know, more than 20 people to a three-bedroom house. Um, again, when you look at Murajulu, which was ground zero for the intervention, um, again, it was government policy that built that community on that particular site. If they'd had any conversation with any Aboriginal people from that region at that point in time, they'd have told you the water source wasn't good enough because, believe it or not, Aboriginal people know where water is. Um, and so there isn't adequate water supply even on that community. When they built it, they didn't project and they, they built it in largely in the 80s. They didn't do any forward thinking about, well, what happens when people have children? How big will the community need to be? How do we get electricity to these people? How do we ensure the water supply is enough? So all of those sorts of things then have absolute compound effects um, around your ability to create 
a job in that environment. And again, those jobs were all determined, the jobs that you can have on communities, pretty much determined by governments elsewhere. And they sit in things like healthcare centres, they sit in things like schools where you need really high levels of education in order to be able to participate into, in, in, those health, in those professions. And again, if you talk to Aboriginal people on the ground, they're going to tell you, well, in actual fact, there's heaps of jobs out there. You just don't pay us for them. There are heaps of jobs that could be in those healthcare centres and in those schools that would ensure they were culturally safe, that children who didn't speak English as a first language could walk in and thrive, not only to be able to learn in their own language, but to also be able to use the strengths and their cultural knowledges um, and align those to things like the curriculum. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. Again, around about that time you also saw things like um, bilingual education really slipping off the radar and when you look at what bilingual education did the the argument for taking for getting rid of it was that um, those schools perhaps did not get the same uh, there was no difference no massive difference in the educational outcomes of children in those schools but it again when you talk to an aboriginal person they'll tell you that was the wrong measure that was actually the wrong measure. Were you looking at the quality of the education in the schools? Were you looking at whether or not those schools were appropriate for our children? Um, were you looking at what being able to speak your own language and write in your own language means for your social and emotional well-being and your ability to um, know that you're culturally strong enough to exist in a world and an environment? Because the Northern Territory, and, and I hate to say it, it's my home, but it is racist. The, the racism in, in the Northern Territory is horrific. Um, and that doesn't mean there aren't very good people in, in the Northern Territory. And that doesn't mean, I think, that people even consider themselves to be to, to be benefiting from racism because it's covert and it's, it's embedded and it's um, entrenched into the structures and the operating rhythm. And, and, and people don't necessarily see that because you just, you're just living your life. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. Again, when you look at the Northern Territory right now and you look at why, why we lean into the policy space, um, those frontline services that were smashed in the 2014 cuts, they all screamed in pain. They absolutely screamed in pain. In Alice Springs, they don't, it wasn't only those cuts that had come in. The year before, they'd also been significant cuts to frontline service delivery from um, the territory government as well. Now, what, what I'm saying here is that each of these, when I say government, I mean each of these is a government change because governments come in with their own agendas and their own platforms, and that's where the money goes. You you come in on a platform that says we're going to lock everyone up, that is where the dollars go. So in 2013 in Alice Springs, you know, there were incredible initiatives going on. It was sort of like the beacon of progressive thought around how you ensure that children are safe, uh, that families have what they need to be successful, that everyone has a place to go and everything is accessible. And overnight, those things were just wiped out. You know, there were up to, you know, 35 additional Aboriginal staff in schools gone overnight. There was a team of 50 in targeted support in child protection that would go in and work with families as soon as you got any inkling that a family might need a little bit of support, gone overnight. None of these things were evaluated. None of these things were measured. They were just gone overnight because there was a policy change. And these things have massive impacts on the communities around them. But more importantly, it means there's nothing there. Again, when you look at Alice Springs and the history of Alice Springs, Every summer, every single summer, you see an uptake in crime. It's up it goes. And we know this. It happens every single year. And there's a number of reasons for that. People come into town because it's a bit exciting. And again, um, there's not necessarily somewhere for someone to stay when they come into town. Uh, they might get stuck there and they might get stuck there because guess what? Something's gone wrong with your Centrelink and you actually can't get the money to get back home again. Happens all the time. Um, it might be because of um, you thought you had a place to stay but the accommodation's all booked out. And again, when you th think about what that means, if you're on Centrelink and you've just paid a small fortune like up to $5 a litre in fuel to travel 300 kilometres into town and then you've gone and bought groceries, there's not a lot of money left in your bucket. And again, um, a lot of those families don't have access to Centrelink anyway because those services were centralised. Again, a government move. Let's centralise all our services in Alice Springs, but we'll send people out to visit you. 
and they'll pick you up doesn't happen that way. So when they come into town, the money's cut off, the accommodation's $10 a night per person. These are extraordinary costs if you've got a family. I mean, imagine that, six people in your family, $10 per person per night while you're in town on Centrelink payments. So these things result in things like children being hungry and not having enough food to eat. Um, and then you see an uptake of, of children breaking into houses for food. Um, and don't get me wrong, breaking into houses, again, not okay. These behaviours are not okay, but it's really important to understand those big system drivers underneath it. Um, when you look at the Northern Territory, again, one of those big conversations about what was going on was putting up how many how many notifications there are relating to child abuse and neglect in Central Australia. And, and data, isolated data without the story behind it is really, really dangerous and really, really dodgy. So there are a couple of things that that, that inform that story. One is mandatory reporting, and that was part of the intervention. And not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, but it does mean that a significant number of notifications um, are things like licensed scabies. Again, where there's licensed scabies, it's usually because the parents are living in homes that are overcrowded or don't have access to water. In the way that you'd expect, you can't just turn, a lot of these communities, you can't just turn on a tap. The water is not there or if the water is there it might be contaminated with uranium so you're not allowed to wash your children and your sheets every day at least that's the advice and again you've got to think about how these things are interpreted particularly when you're talking to people who might not have English as the first language and in fact might be like the fifth or sixth language so a lot of those notifications are things like that again it doesn't break it down into sets so you can see what a substantiation is and how severe a substantiation might be or whether or not it's one family over a course of a couple of things or whether or not it's yes it was substantiated that baby um, did not come to school with lunch that day um, and again, there's th these these are problems, and they 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 are massive problems that need to be addressed. But it's not necessarily the picture that you see. Um, so it looks it 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 can it, in it can be interpreted in a way that is very very harmful um, if you want to interpret it that way and again it doesn't show the methodology behind how those numbers were put together so even in me talking about what might be underneath it I don't have the methodology and I'm not even going to try and dissect it because that's not for me to do I'm not I'm not a data expert but the figures um, again align with the the levels of poverty in the Northern Territory and what we know historically is a lot of the notifications that children have with child protection are a direct result of poverty. They're a direct result of intergenerational trauma. They're a direct result of families not being able to get up and get a job because they, as children also, did not have the education. Um, the jobs available and to them are not there. You can't, as an Aboriginal person from a community, just apply for a job and expect you'll get one because it's not going to happen, not, not in Alice Springs, not even on your own communities. Uh, you know, even... Last week, I was out at Moody, Moody Juluf, um, and one of my aunties who works there said, look, Catherine, we're going to have a chat. All these people, they, they reckon they want to work for children, they want to talk to children. We have 36 different services in Moody Julu, all delivering services for children. I said, what's your population? Full population, not child population. She said 150 at the moment. That's what we deal with day in day out so it is so messy and it is so big and it's so hard to unpack and yet whenever things go wrong like I said going back to Alice Springs everyone knew that there would be a tick in crime over summer everyone knew that the alcohol restrictions were coming off but no one had invested and when I mean no one I mean governments had invested in the midterm solutions that would ensure that, the, that, that we had the structures in place when those things were removed, that families were strong, that we had places and basketball courts open. Oh, my goodness. Think about that one. Imagine a Christmas and you know there's children everywhere and you can't so much as go and play basketball because there's nowhere for you to play. Catherine, these are the most extraordinary stories and and I have to say I share your perspective that listening to your stories is 
more important than the data that is often presented. I think understanding the context is completely key. And, and all I can do is say how grateful I am. So, so extraordinarily generous of you to share these stories with us and with our listeners today, because I think that context, the trauma of colonisation, uh, the extraordinary structural disadvantage that's been baked in in often a racist way in the Northern Territory. These are the issues that need to be contended with. These are the stories and the narratives that we so need to hear. Listeners, we're going to take a really short break now and we'll be back in just a moment with Catherine Little. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, we're talking with Catherine Little, who's the CEO of Snake. It's been an extraordinary conversation so far and I'm so looking forward to hearing more from her. Catherine, before the break, you talked about the prevalence of racism in the Northern Territory. Mm -hmm. uh, we are at the moment seeing deep racism continue to play out in different ways mm -hmm. and the appalling treatment of sports people like Buddy Franklin, the echoes of shameful treatment of Adam Goods, mm -hmm. through to the heartbreaking decision of Stan Grant to step back from his role at the ABC, very much understandable but devastating. In some ways, the answer to this question is painfully obvious, but I wonder if you might share with us how racism impacts on Indigenous children and young people. Oh, look, I think one of the easiest ways to point to that would be the um, maltreatment study that's only just been released. And again, interesting that um, while people were shining this this uh, light on Alice Springs, they weren't shining a light on, on the results of the maltreatment study, which tells you a lot because that told a very, very, very different story about the state of Australia's children and in particular um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. But one of the really um, powerful findings of that report was the one that related to emotional abuse and how that impacted on the long-term outcomes of children. That's racism, right? Racism is a form of emotional abuse and it has profound effects on our children. Um, in Alice Springs, you know, when, when media gets hold of these things, and again, you know, it, it is true, we've had it, there are the break-ins are unpleasant. They're really unpleasant. And there probably isn't a single person I know that hasn't been impacted on by by some form of antisocial behaviour. If, if it hasn't been a break-in, then you might have seen kids at your door. You might have had your windows broken in your car. So this is true. These things are real. Um, but no one's talking about what happens and why those behaviours are emerging and, and preventing them. We, we talk about locking up children. No worries. Let's go and lock up a few more children. We've, we, we continue to escalate the numbers of children in um, juvenile detention and yet the crime rate hasn't changed, so it's not working. We're also failing to look at things like the number of children in those juvenile detention centres that have um, underlying learning um, barriers and a lot of those learning difficulties not being picked up until they've hit juvenile detention centres and yet pretty much every single one of those children was known to the child protection sector in the first place. Someone's not doing their job. Um, the other thing we know is most of the children that end up touching the child protection system didn't actually have access to early education and care. So that's that really early intervention piece that says, let's work with your families. Hey, what's going on? Uh, let's pick up any um, additional needs that your children might need. Let's make sure mum knows how to get food if, if the Centrelink's been cut off. Let's make sure you've got access to a computer um, and that there's an interpreter available to you if you need to have a conversation with people. So there's those sorts of things. But when you 
you look again at the the complications around racism for children, not only are the what are there those long term impacts, but you can expect to see children act out when they see their parents treated badly, and that's what they tell us. They feel sad for their parents, they feel angry for their parents, but they also read social media. And the social media um, in Alice Springs at times can be horrific. And again, I I don't want to be bashing my hometown because that's not what I want to do because the majority of people who live in Alice Springs are good, hardworking people. Um, But when governments fail to act on those underlying drivers and you see an increase of antisocial behaviours, it's the people who are victims that get the blame for that. So we're looking at blaming children as opposed to going, come on, seriously, where was the infrastructure? Where was the architecture? Where was the care for the most vulnerable people in the country? Why do we have, why do we not care? Why do we think it's okay to wipe out $81 million in childcare services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, children, when we know the outcome of early education and care and development. We know that in 10 years' time, we're going to see more children on the streets. We know we're going to see more families in distress. But hey, $81 million saving sounds like a good number. Catherine, there's there's so much there that points to the drivers of the problems that we are facing as a country. You know, these are not problems for Indigenous Australia. These are problems created by and for the entire country. And you talked about um, the child maltreatment study and we need to take a, a long, hard look at it, the way we, we treat children in this country for everyone. Um, and you've describes so powerfully the way racism leads the focus to only one group of the population and that is so deeply troubling, so deeply problematic and it continues the trauma. But Catherine, I I just wanted to shift the focus of the conversation a little bit now. Mm -hmm. The 2007 Little Children Are Sacred report carried Mm -hmm. the quote, in our law, Children are very sacred because Mm -hmm. they carry the two spring wells of water from our country within them. The part of the conversation that's so often missing in Australia is Mm -hmm. around the sacredness of children within Indigenous cultures and the ways in which care and community and connection to one another and to country provide a way of thinking about children that non-Indigenous Australians can and should learn so much from. I wonder if you could share with us how children are seen in Indigenous communities and what we all need to learn from that. Uh, Look, I I am very privileged to have grown up under Grandmother's Law and Grandmother's Law has been around for centuries. You know, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child is relatively new, but we have understood as as a people that... um, that care and nurture is fundamental to the well-being of any community. If you if you're able to care and nurture for people, you do not get those long-term social and emotional impacts that we see. You don't see people getting into trouble. So grandmother's law, two sides of law, equal, equal, men's law, women's law. Um, and again, something that gets lost in um, modern rhetoric as well as how powerful female law was. And it, it's really simply described, and that is that if all children are loved as though they are your own, if all children are fed, if all children know who to go to when they feel sad, then all children will thrive. It's as simple and as complicated as that. Um, again, you'll see it articulated slightly differently from in, in different groups, but the premise of it remains the same. Again, if you've ever seen an Aboriginal person stand up in a public position to deliver a speech, try and imagine or remember one example where that person didn't mention their love of children. And yet I don't see that in other people's speeches, but without fail, it doesn't matter what our mob are talking about, somewhere along the line, they pay homage to our children and our love for our children because it is so critical to how we see ourselves and and, and how we represent ourselves as families. So you're right, it is often missed, and yet you know, a lot of what we're seeing now, those push for more holistic and integrated child and family services, we came up with that years ago. We had those services years and years ago. And again, if you look at places like Queensland, where there were at one stage more than more than 20 um, Aboriginal childcare services, all with that 
mother grandmother's law embedded in them and again why snake uh, in its really early days was there um they were pretty much wiped out when the government decided let's put our money into health instead catherine we're at an an historic moment in australia's mm. history as we go to the referendum on an indigenous voice to parliament later this year we've heard this so far this year from several guests on the importance of the voice I'd love to hear from you what you think it would mean for Indigenous children, both today and, and into the future. Yeah, it's, I never know where to start on this one because, like all Aboriginal people, have been on quite a journey um, with this particular story and um, wasn't, you know, I, I, I had other things to do in my life when it was when it was first proposed and, and it was framed around constitutional recognition. And again, I think the overwhelming feeling at that point in time was that wasn't enough. Constitutional recognition in and of itself was never going to be enough. Um, and then when it when the when the mob all came together, um, I was actually doing ceremony. We were doing a repatriation. One of my nana's stories hadn't been practiced for 50 years because we hadn't been able to access the regions. Um, for multiple reasons, one of them, you know, pastoral leases um, that change the landscape, your inability to access roads, those types of things. So we were doing this extraordinary repatriation with all of my nanas and we were almost at the end when these helicopters flew in. If I don't know if you can imagine that, but there we are surrounded by red dirt. We've been singing and dancing all week and in come these helicopters to pick up some of the old girls. And um, the old girls jump on the helicopter and we're going, where are they going? Where are they going? Oh, they're going to Uluru for that, for that, you know, that thing. What thing? You know, that thing. And it uh, turns out that thing was the the um, drafting of the Uluru Statement and the welcoming of the Uluru Statement. And so part of me had to start thinking a little bit differently about that because, you know, I um, grew up under grandmother's law. I follow those women. They are my leaders. I only speak when I have delegation like a lot of Aboriginal people. You might find sometimes we're a bit caught silent. It's because someone else in the room has more authority than we do. Anyhow, um, when I finally saw that, statement it was a few years it was it was a couple of years later and and I'd heard about it and I remember thinking I'm oh they've wrestled it they've wrestled the narrative and they've come up with what most Aboriginal people would have said and that is we need a way to protect our interests in a different way we need to ensure that we're not just currently weaponised, we're not consistently weaponised, that we can't just be used as a political football every time a new government comes in and, and changes its mind about how you, you deal with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You know, we're really, we actually got a lot of really smart people and we've got a lot of really awesome people around us. We, we have these incredible thriving communities. And anyhow, this is a long story. Sorry, I apologise. Anyhow, the... Um, I get this phone call one day and uh, it's this bloke called Thomas Mayer who I've never heard of. I think most people have heard of him these days. I'd never heard of him. And he says, Catherine, can I come and chat to you? And I, I want to chat to you and maybe some of your family because we're TOs in, in Alice Springs and he wanted to meet with a few TOs. So I said, yeah, no worries. We'll get a few people around. And, you know, I ring up the old grannies and I say, and the nanas and the aunties, and I say, oh, listen, this bloke wants to come and talk to you about this Uluru statement. And they're going, what Uluru statement? That one we, we talked about, I said, yeah, that one, um, because a lot of them had been involved in the dialogues. And they go, oh, what's he want to do? I said, oh, he wants to show it to you. And they're going, oh, how's that going to look? I said, I don't know, I must have a computer or, I don't know, printout or something. And they go, oh, you're going to make scones? I'm like, yeah, I'll make scones. They go, you're going to make sultana scones? And I said, no. And they're like, oh, that's good because I don't like sultana scones. And uh, I said, well, it's a pretty good thing I'm not making those sultana scones. Anyhow, you know, you ring up the next one. So who is this bloke again? Oh, Thomas Mayer, Mayer. Oh, who's his mob? I said, oh, I don't know. Top end mob. Oh, they like the mayos or majors or what? I said, I don't know. We'll find out when he gets there. Oh, and you're making scones. I said, yeah. Are you got straw you got apricot jam? I said, no, only strawberry jam. No, that's good because I only like strawberry jam. I don't like apricot jam. Anyhow, ultimately, all the nanas and grounties turn up and they're sitting around my um, my table and, and I'm making the scones and I'm getting the cream ready and and they are, and the question goes again, so who's this bloke and how are we going to do this? How are we going to look at this statement? I said, I don't know. 
I don't know, we'll find out when he gets there. And then all of a sudden there's this knock on the door and you look down my hallway and my hallway, um, if you if you look down it, is, um, there's a screen door and it's all silhouetted so it's backlit and in the silhouette is Thomas Mayer who's a very tall man and this giant cylinder and the aunties who are just around the corner in the dining room, they can't see what is at my door. I can but they can't but whatever was coming through the door was so powerful that everyone went silent. So they've gone from, who's this person? Oh, I might have that's gone, to silence. Something quite remarkable was happening. And uh, in comes Thomas Mayer, and uh, he does his usual, and they, they do their usual. Again, it's the same conversation. So who's your mob? Oh, oh, what family do you belong to? And everyone's avoiding asking the really big question, that is, what is inside that giant cylinder? Anyhow, eventually, <laughs> after all those things are, he says, listen, I've come to show you something. And they say, oh, what is it? And he, they, he says, the Uluru Statement. Anyhow, he puts it down and uh, he says, <laughs> we said, what, in, that, in that thing you're carrying? He goes, yeah, I've got the Uluru Statement with me. And um, he rolls it out and he puts it on the floor of my lounge room. Quite the extraordinary moment in time. The Uluru Statement is on the floor of my lounge room and all my family um, – is gathered around it and I've got a pretty big bloody family. And it was the most extraordinary thing as we read those words and that we looked at the signatures of all those delegates and understood because we could hear the beating of that heartbeat. It was it was extraordinary. It was like it was pulsating and that understanding that every signature there was actually backed up by the communities that they represented and the ancestors. So it was far more powerful than anything I had actually expected to see. So I had to start thinking about this journey that everyone had been on very, very differently. And when it was announced um, as part of the as as part of the prime minister's opening speech that this was the journey we were going to go on you know the first thing that we have to do as the national voice for children is is clear things with our board and our council to say well where do we stand on this and um you know, I, I don't actually believe it or not like putting my head up very much. If, if I can sit up the back, I'll sit up the back and, and not speak And because uh, there's there's great risk that comes when you stick your head up. Um, and I said to um, my board and my council, well, what are we going to do? And they said, as the national voice for children, as the body that for 42 years has fought tooth and nail to ensure that the voice of Aboriginal children and families can be seen in policy to protect us from what goes wrong when policies are made without us and uninformed by us. How can you not stand up? How can Snake not be brave and not be bold and stand up and fight for this? Um, and again, my job as someone who is a delegated position, right, that's my job is to do what those people and those voices tell me to do. So we we leaned in. Um, and we lean in because this is what we do day in, day out. We are in those rooms working with governments to better understand the impact of policies on our children. The reason we tell those stories and the stories that I've told you today is because stories illustrate how policy lands. And without those stories, without that ability to talk to governments and say, listen, I know you. this is a really good idea, um, centralising service delivery. But what are you, where are people going to stay when they come into town to access services? Who are they going to talk to when they come into town to access services? When you cut that pension in half and decide to pay out that pension on one day, one week, and one day the next week, how is there enough money in someone's bank account to go and buy a trolley full of groceries? So without the ability to inform some of those things, even and because it's we're, all we're talking about is info, is is voice, it, it 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 it's the ability to say, hey, these things might have this impact on us, and these are the things that might happen as a result of us. How can we work around it? How can we get the best outcome? We understand that you've got things to do, but if you want to talk to us about what's happening in Alice Springs right now, maybe you've got to talk to us first so that you understand what's happening. Um, so we're leaning in pretty hard um, because we know everything relates to policy. 
everything relates to policy. We know that those policy wins are only as good as the government that gets them across the line. We know that, yes, this is an unprecedented time when we have these incredible number of Aboriginal politicians in Parliament and people confuse politicians with policy. Politicians represent their parties and their electorates and they come and go. We don't know how long we'll have them in place for, which is very different to a voice that is designed to represent its local regions and then find a way to push that voice up into Parliament so it doesn't matter how many politicians of our mob are in are in the room, we're always going to be able to say something. And it doesn't matter who's in government, it can't be taken off us like ATSIC was. Catherine, when I hear you talk, it it, it really reinforces just how much is at stake um, as this year plays out and we move towards that referendum. I have deep faith that the people of Australia will vote yes when the moment comes. But if what is almost unthinkable happens and it is a no vote, what would that mean? What would that mean for the work that you do? And what would it mean for, for both Aboriginal people, but also for all of Australia? Yeah, look, I think either way, there's going to have to be a lot of healing after this because it has been, you know, the, I mean... It has much like that. That I guess when I talked about Alice Springs, it's a microcosm, really, and we're seeing elements of that right across Australia at this moment in time. Every positive story about Aboriginal people, you can expect to see a minimum of five negative ones, and that's being really, really conservative. It's probably more like ten or twenty. Anyone who wants to test it, please do go and scroll through your feeds. If you see a positive story about Voice or a positive story about someone who is Aboriginal doing a fantastic thing, then go and see how many negative stories are targeted at responding to that. It is significant. So we know that there is going to be a lot of harm done. But we also know that Australians are pretty clever and they don't necessarily listen to what governments say or what media says. So I think we'll see a mobilisation of people who want more. Um, I, I'm hoping that if there is a no vote, um, as a country, we won't, we won't suffer too much, I'd, I'd hope, because, I mean, I, I don't even want to think about what that looks like internationally, particularly when you think about how we're, we're not too bad at throwing stones at other countries that we believe don't protect the human rights of Indigenous peoples. So I'm wondering how that might be used against Australia when they go, you can't even give your First Nations people a voice, that instrument that might enable them to talk about how we get a treaty across the line or how do we ensure that all of our children are thriving and happy and healthy. Um, again, if it's a no voice for, for me and, and for Snake, we wake up the next day and we continue to do what we're doing now and that is to talk with our communities, to carry their stories um, and to fight as hard as we can to get the best policy outcomes for our families and children. Catherine, this has genuinely been an extraordinary conversation. The way you tell the stories of your people, the way you tell the stories of this country is just phenomenal. Um, and I think anyone listening to this would understand why the voice matters so much, but why it also matters for us to reflect on the history and the soul of our country and to think about how we build a different future Catherine, as we draw this conversation to a close, I, I wanted to ask you, as, as people go to the polls later this year and as they think about how they're going to vote, what do you hope they have at the forefront of their minds? What message would you leave people with as they, as they think about that vote that will shape our future later this year? I hope they go feeling energised, actually. I hope they go with hope um, and that they feel good about the vote that they cast. And again, it's an interesting day to be recording this because um, as I got up this morning and, and attempted to write a post for LinkedIn, I'm, I'm one of those people that's always attempting to write posts for LinkedIn and then never managed to press enter because something happens. Um, but that particular post really was rooted in what today is and that's sorry day. And uh, again, you know, I, I know that this day for my grandfather who didn't leave to live to see it would have meant the world to him, would have absolutely meant to the world to him. But what it did was for the first time ever publicly acknowledge that this was a government policy and its impacts were horrific and that we needed to start down um, a road to healing and reconciliation. So 
I, I was thinking about that and thinking about at, at the same time um, how um, there were people that turned their back on that. There were people that stood up and turned their back in disgust that a Prime Minister was apologising for a government policy that taught children from their parents for no reason other than governments wanted their children to behave differently and to reject their Aboriginal culture and to, to override our ways of, of being. Um, and part of that disgust was rooted in this conversation that said Australia will fall, Australia will be divided forever, Australia will pay the price of saying sorry. Guess what happened? Nothing. None of that happened. What did happen was those people who had been impacted on those policies breathed a sigh of relief that they weren't shouting into a void. So when you go to cast your void, think of that. Think of the sigh of relief. Catherine, thank you so much for the wisdom you've shared with us today. Thank you for your honesty in talking about our history but also in sharing with us what the future might look like. Here at the ANU and on this podcast, we are hoping to wake up on the day after the referendum with love and hope in our hearts after a yes vote. Thank you for sharing with us today why that yes vote matters so very much to all of us. Thank you. Anna Greta, what a conversation for us to have on Sorry Day and leading into Reconciliation Week. I think that was perhaps one of the most powerful conversations we've had on the pod. I couldn't agree more. Certainly, Catherine is extraordinary in the way in which she shares uh, the love that we feel around the Uluru Statement uh, and the tremendous importance of this process that's underway here in Australia of the voice of understanding, truth-telling and reconciling, so moving towards a treaty. Uh, the most extraordinarily powerful stories that she shared with us today, we can only express our profound gratitude. And I think for any of our listeners, Anna Greta, who are having any concerns about whether the voice is the right way for us to move forward as a nation, whether this is something that's meaningful for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, I think the power of that conversation and the power of Catherine's stories of her life, of the life of her people, demonstrate to us that this means so much and this is a moment in history that we cannot afford to lose or to get wrong. Um, I was so struck, Anna Greta, by the comments that she made about poverty and the way poverty is often misunderstood as neglect, leading to terrible consequences for First Nations people that mm. don't get to the deep underlying causes of, of disadvantage, that don't get to the ongoing legacy of and the ongoing reality of colonisation, um, but just treat the symptoms in, a, in such a damaging way. Um, and, of course, Catherine pointed out to us the hypocrisy and double standards that we apply when we think of our conversation with Daryl Higgins, how many children in Australia have been subjected to maltreatment, um, and yet we have this incredibly punitive and damaging response when there's any assumption, even without evidence, um, of something going wrong for First Nations children. Mm. The, the, the stories that she told, I think we could talk about for a very long time, um, the they're, they're stories I will keep in my head for a long time, but I hope our listeners felt the power of them as we did. Mm. Oh, they're stories that we'll carry in our heart. For listeners, you might remember that we have had conversations on the pod previously around energy and water security, particularly in the Northern Territory and particularly in Indigenous communities, uh, that this is an ongoing source of entrenched disadvantage, structural disadvantage that could be addressed from po a policy perspective. I think one of the most powerful takeaway messages for me listening to Catherine today is a deep appreciation that colonisation is not an historic event but an active process, one that's very, very much still part of the lived experience for our First Nations people around the country, a First Nations people with generosity and love who are asking us to disrupt that process. Uh, and so the most powerful reasons for uh, a yes vote in the referendum later this year is that we might disrupt this harmful process of colonisation and really come together as a nation, an extraordinary opportunity. 
Yeah, it's a moment of hope for the future, Annie Greta. It is. This podcast is produced by policyforum.net and we will leave a link to the publications and the sources that we've discussed in the show notes today. If you've liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, we would love a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about the podcast. And of course, we love hearing from our audience and we would love to hear your thoughts on this episode especially. So do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. Or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. That's all we have time for this week. We will be back again soon. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.